Well, we're back again Wednesday night, just after a short break, and uh, ready to begin a new study tonight, having finished uh, working through the book of of uh, Jonah, and uh, sticking with the J's, and uh, going to the New Testament tonight, and I'm going to be looking at, uh, for the next while anyway, uh, the book of James. And so, once again, thank you for just joining me, and I do trust that there is value in, in what we do in these studies, and uh, just looking forward to once again uh, scrutinizing and looking at this book of James, uh, seeing how much we can benefit from it, and what it is that God will be saying to us and, and does say to us uh, through this uh, not very long book, but a very useful and uh, practical book in the Bible. So do pray with me. Let's bow our heads together as we just commit this time to the Lord. Dear Father, thank you for the study of the Word. And we know, Lord, that we ought to meditate on the Word. We ought to hide your Word in our hearts. We ought, Lord, not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And so as we study this book again tonight, as we come together at different places, perhaps even at different times, that our meditation on this word would lead to greater fruitfulness in our lives, both in what we do and also in what we become. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So really tonight, what I'd like to do is just uh, the first verse. And uh, so do have your Bible open with you. And we're going to navigate our way through this book. And and of course, remember that these uh, were letters written. And and this uh, uh, particular book, James, is known as a general epistle. And uh, in this general epistle, uh, written to Christians who were scattered around. We'll say a little bit more about that later because of persecution. And so just the opening verse, uh, very standard kind of greeting uh, in the literature and particularly in the letter style of writing, the epistle, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, James. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And that's as far as we're going to go tonight and just trust that there would be some uh, benefit uh, for us in this. Maybe just a few comments as we, we begin, and I'm going to try and say something more as we progress in terms of just introducing the book, but uh, uh, perhaps a, a comment that I've heard along the way. Uh, some years ago, advice given to a number of us preachers together, and, and the advice was as follows, it, that it is not advisable to preach through the book of James Unless you are feeling that you're at the end of a particular ministry and you feel you, you want to move on. Well, that certainly isn't my intention tonight. I'm not taking this advice. I think all of the Bible, including the book of James, uh, ought to be studied at any time, at any place, because it, it is all part of the counsel uh, of God. The reason that particular advice was offered was because it is a tough book. The book of James is quite challenging. It's quite a penetrating book into the lives of us believers. And, and the reason for that is because it has a very strong practical emphasis. And so because it has this strong uh, emphasis on, on daily living and, and the way we ought to be living our lives, 
it, it forces us, it forces us to examine and see, are we in fact developing? Are we in fact uh, displaying something of the genuineness and sincerity of true saving faith? And so therefore, it is going to be quite challenging and I am going to raise some of the difficult issues as we progress over the course of the next weeks, God willing. And and the reason it's difficult, the reason practical emphasis can be sometimes hard for us to swallow or hard for us to be confronted with is because it's more comfortable. It's easier to 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 deal with theoretical concepts. It's easier to uh, discuss ideas and doctrine. And, and of course, all of that has its place. You know that that's extremely important, that we should not uh, tolerate any uh, weaker view or uh, lack of seriousness when it comes to studying sound doctrine and even the depth of that doctrine. But when we get to the practical issues, there's a mirror that we look into a lot more closely and a lot more specifically and a lot more particularly. And we're able to say, but hang on a minute, is that true of me? It should be true of me. And if it's not true of me, if it's not true of you, it leaves us feeling uncomfortable and awkward. And, you know, do we really want to be confronted with this kind of stuff? And and it really exposes it very easily and, and uh, rightly so exposes our true spiritual state in the present. Now, of course, your spiritual state, I would hope at the moment, is healthy and and you're growing week by week, day by day as a believer. But it also may be true that your spiritual state has reached a stage of perhaps a little bit of lethargy. Uh, Perhaps your heart has grown a little bit hard and uh, you've backslidden. And and, and this, this book will help you to see whether there is a progress in the development of your spiritual life, whether there is in fact movement in this process of being sanctified. And we often, I know I often use the phrase being conformed to the moral likeness of Jesus. That That's what this book will do. It will confront us with issues that will bring, bring us more and more into conformity with the likeness of, of Jesus. I have a quote here from uh, Thomas Manton. Now, perhaps that's not a name you know, but uh, from time to time you know that I refer to the Puritans. I really find that the Puritans had a depth of insight and, and seriousness of faith and spirituality that, that is worth exploring. And Thomas Manton is one of the Puritans. And uh, he has a comment about uh, uh, an attitude that, that does not want to face Uh, the practical realities and challenges that come to us from the book of James. Let me quote. He says, we're all apt to divorce comfort from duty and to content ourselves with a barren and unfruitful knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, what he means by that is we're quite happy. We're quite content to plod along uh, being uh, sluggish and unfruitful, and not making progress, and being ineffective, and being unproductive as Christians, and and, and, and comes from a mindset, he, th- he, he suggests, and I want to quote further, that it comes from us thinking that uh, as if all that he required, that is Jesus, of the world, were only a few naked, cold, and inactive apprehensions of his merit, and all things were so done for us, 
that nothing remained to be done by us. Now I want to explore in the study today uh, the truth of what Manton is is saying and, and challenging us with. Are we comfortable? Do we just have this this uh, general kind of feeling, well, we are beneficiaries of the merits of Christ, so we sit back on our laurels and, and, and don't take seriously the work that we need to do in this process of making progress in our sanctification. We're in 2022. What, what do you perceive? What do you see around you? What do you see in yourself in terms of, if you like, uh, use the word brand of Christianity. More often than not, many, many believers would be content to settle for the privileges and comforts of, that Christ offers, but refuse to tolerate or accept, to take on the responsibility, to accept responsibility that there is work to be done as a believer and and work to be done yes outside of us in the world around us but also work to be done in our own moral change our own process of becoming more and more holy more and more like Jesus Uh, again back to Thomas Menton and he speaks of his own time back in the 17th century it seems like nothing is new he says he says of 17th century England that it was the wretched conceit of many either to turn the sweetness of God's grace into looseness or the power of His grace into laziness. In other words, the tendency of the people was, yeah, we like the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're going to simply live promiscuous uh, and and sinful lives and, and sin as it were that grace would abound. Or, or on the other hand, just... Lazy Christians, not getting involved, not active, not productive and effective in the world that God has placed us in. Again, to continue with Menton and what he says, one says, they're referring to certain people, he says, one said, God is too nice to be hard on me for being less than an active Christian. God is too nice. While others say God is surely accomplishing his will that he doesn't need me as such all that much. Wrong. It's not a question of God needing. It's about God uh, commanding. It's about God being at work in you and you being at work and me being at work in myself under God to the glory of his name. And so basically what I'm showing in this introduction is that human nature hasn't really changed over the years and so what, what does that mean for us at Central Baptist Church in 2022? We too need to constantly emphasize and focus on emphasizing on the practical instructions and the practical challenges that come from God's Word. Now the book of James. The book of James in the shortness of the book has 54 imperatives. 54 commands. These are not merely options to consider These are specific commands given to believers. These are words that say, do this or don't do this, positively or negatively. And in reality is addressing and will address, we will see in this book, 
the nuts and bolts of daily attitudes and actions of us believers. I do need to also add the comment that this book is not about legalism. This is not a promotion of salvation by works, not at all. In fact, that is going to be the focus of our study today as we progress a little bit later looking at the person of James himself. The theme of the book rather can be stated, and, and, and I'm going to go to the PowerPoint now, and give you the theme. That's, that's the theme that I'm going to be repeatedly returning to. The centrality of Christ in your life will inevitably make you a rejoicing servant of your Father God and His Son. And so in reality, we're going to be looking at the fact, the very important fact, that true believers are those who do obey the commands of God and seek to obey the commands of God and seek to grow in being conformed to the likeness um, of, of Jesus. Now, let me go back just to the, the open slide and before I get a little bit later to my, my first point. We will see in the study that faith that is real, now, even perhaps to pause at that particular instance, there is a kind of faith, and it's not real faith, but people call it faith, that's not real faith, that's not genuine. We need to understand that. So there is the genuine article, and there is the not genuine article. There is the counterfeit uh, kind of faith. But faith that is real works out practically in your life. True faith is faith that works. And I want to say that again. It's a very uh, well-known statement. It's, it's, it's frequently quoted by many people down through the ages. But true faith, you, if you and I have true faith, it will be ev evident that we are at work. Uh, at work, again, as I said earlier, outside in the world around us, but also at work in the process of transformation as we work uh, as God works, uh, uh, both of us at work in changing who we are, uh, removing those uh, spots and wrinkles of sin and uh, those things that get in the way of us really being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so really the book of James is a manual on practical godliness, practical godliness. Um, the starting point and ultimate purpose of the letter and the reason I'm spending so much time on verse 1 is I want to establish uh, this very, very much as the foundation as we progress in the study is that uh, salvation by grace through faith. There, there, there is no question uh, about that. But, but, but once someone is being converted, there definitely is the evidence of that faith. And so... Every imperative, and remember there are 54 of them, every imperative has the assumption you are a follower of Jesus. So when James commands something, do this, don't do that, he's assuming, he's taking it for granted that you are a professing, genuine believer. Every imperative assumes that you're a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every issue must be understood in the light of the opening verse 
And again, I'll read it. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, let's get to the nuts and bolts of what I want to uh, get on to say tonight or elaborate on what I've been uh, trying to elaborate or expand on in this introduction. In the opening statement, in this opening verse, we have what I want to call tonight essential ingredients of faith that works. The essential ingredients of genuine faith that has the outworking of fruitfulness and productivity as a Christian. And the reason we focus on the first verse is because it is true of the man writing the letter. He's writing as a fellow believer. He's writing as someone who himself is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at some of these ingredients uh, like James. Now remember, that's what we're looking at James, but I want to apply it. I don't want to just do a theoretical study. It's a practical study. So the first ingredient of faith that works that we see in James is that of, let me go on to the first point, is that that you have a new starting point in your life. New starting point in your life. Now, in, a, in my preparation today, <clears throat> going back to some of the notes that I had written, uh, I noticed that there is some controversy uh, regarding who James actually is. Now, I landed on a particular conclusion. I've landed on the conclusion that James here is the half-brother of Jesus. There is a multiple number of Jameses when you read the book of the New Testament, or the book of Acts particularly, but of course the Gospels. There's James, the son of Zebedee. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, there's James, the brother of Jesus. So I'm going to take the stance that, that James was none other than the half-brother of Jesus, uh, raised in, in the same house as Jesus. And, and therefore, let, let us enter into the world of, of what that world must have been like as uh, those who were siblings in a home under parents, uh, Joseph and, and Mary, and, and there's Jesus and James and, 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 and another. They would have played together. James would have known Jesus in his childhood, in his adolescence, in his young adult years. They would have worked together in the workshop as Joseph was a carpenter and uh, worked together and, and experienced life uh, in the workshop, having uh, some kind of uh, discipline in, in, in duty. They would have worshipped together as a, as a Jewish family. And we know that, of course, them uh, going up to um, Jerusalem at a particular point in time. And so the point I'm trying to make is that James was not distant from the historical unfolding of the life of Jesus. He knew he would have known something of the detail, more than most, of the full life of Jesus. The details of not only Jesus growing up, but Jesus as an adult, Jesus and his ministry, the baptism of Jesus, the announcement of Jesus. Now thinking of this in chapter 4 and verse 18, remember Jesus making the point, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and, and so on. And then at the end of that uh, quotation, today, referring back to the Old Testament prophecy where this is stated, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, do you see where I'm going over here? James would have known this. He would have known about the miracles, the wisdom, the teaching, the various confrontations with the Pharisees, the conflict. And then ultimately, James would have been a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. For most of this time, James is an unbeliever. We read this in John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. There was a time, there was a season, there were years when James did not believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Therefore, there must have been tensions in the home. Jesus making these claims, the siblings responding to these claims, I would think there may even have been some kind of antagonism from James toward Jesus. But then at a point in time, he was converted. And then we see James present, active in ministry in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. He's mentioned as being in the upper room in Jerusalem, Praying with his mother and the rest of the disciples. Acts chapter 1 verse 13. I'll read the whole passage. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice this is the phrase. Together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't that wonderful? There had been a change. Something happened in the life of James. Also later we see that he became the leader, one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, when Peter was released from prison in Acts chapter 12 verse 17. Now read there, but motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. That is Peter. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. And then we even see some involvement in Acts chapter 15, verse 13 onwards, a long passage over there where James is mentioned as being involved in the Jerusalem council. Now my point is simply this. The unbelieving and skeptical brother had become a servant of Christ. There was a new starting point in his life. James is miraculously born again. He's given the gift of faith. God intervened in the life of this man and he saves him by grace. In fact, as history unfolds and as we have the record of the early church history, James becomes known as James the Just, a man of immense piety, a man known for his holiness. 
So I have a quotation here from the historian Eusebius, and he records the testimony of another man by the name of Hegesippus. Wow, what a name. And this is what he says of James. He used to enter alone into the temple, and he would be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like camels because of his constant worship of God. So from excessive righteousness, he was called the just. So James knew Jesus all of his life. However, James really knew Jesus after his conversion. You see, it's one thing to know Jesus historically. It's one thing to know things about Jesus. But do you know, as James got to know, Jesus savingly? James got to know Jesus savingly, converted to believe in him, to entrust his life to him, receiving the benefits of his saving work. And so there is an important question as we look at this book. We can't uh, look at this book and look at all the imperatives and and, and I know that some people might respond and say, oh, oh you're going down the road of legalism and, and there's no legalism in the New Testament and so on. No, 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 not legalism. It's that which follows the life of conversion. It's that which follows a new start. So the lifestyle changes that will confront us in this book come from the Holy Spirit, but through a man who had come to faith in Christ. And so if we use the word of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians, he'd become a new creature in Christ. Not a perfect creature, not a perfect creature. The old certainly had passed, but the new had come. And so there's a new disposition, there's a new mindset, there's a new ambition, the, the, the new loves that he has. Bottom line, there's a new way of life to pursue. And so if you or me, like him, have become new creatures in Christ, then your faith will be faith that works. And, and folk, I want to step back for a minute and say I'm really concerned that there are so many people who call themselves Christians but simply do not give any evidence. Their lives do not show any evidence of this kind of transformation to the likeness of Jesus. And so the challenges to you, the challenges to me, does your faith lead to this kind of transformation that James will address in this book? Well, like James also, there's a second ingredient that I want to touch on. Second ingredient of faith that works is that you have a new view of yourself. You kind of see yourself differently. That's, that's the point I want to make. James saw himself differently. Now, let's think again about James, brother of Jesus. Or the cousin of Jesus, if that was your particular view. Or even it, was, it could not be James the disciple, the son of Zebedee, because he had been martyred earlier on before this book had been written. But this is the way he sees himself. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dulos. Slave. A slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. What kind of perception is that? That kind of perception only comes if there's been a new start. Because 
we know back then, we also know in our own world, the natural tendency of men and women is to parade their credentials and their qualifications and their assets. That, that's what secular, unsaved people like to do. Well, James, humanly speaking, has ground in which he could have pulled rank. He could have stated in his letter, James the Just, from the sacred womb of Mary, congenital sibling of Jesus, confidant of the Messiah. Doesn't do any of that. It does not even allude to his status. He's content with doulos, slave, servant. He's content. He's content. Oh, folk, where are the Christians who are willing to be content to be humble servants? And so ask yourself tonight, challenge myself. How do you view yourself? How do I view myself in the context of the church and in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you parade yourself? How do you hold yourself up to others in conversation? As one who is extremely intelligent, as one who is abounding and filled with talent, well connected in terms of your heritage, very, very wealthy and independent, lacking, uh, not lacking anything, having great status in the city of Pretoria. Well, as someone who's been born again, all of that is really counted as nothing. And it's not just James that I can refer to. The immediate example that comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3. Well-known passage, but not such a passage that's applied very often. Remember the Apostle writing, and I'm going to read the passage. It's a long passage. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Then he gives examples. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. And then he gives a, a list of his credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. But folk, verse 7, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This man, the Apostle Paul, like James, had a new start. On the road to Damascus, he was born again, he was transformed. Servant, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own comes through faith, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then he goes on that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This, this, this is the mindset. This, this ought to be the way forward. This ought to be the kind of evidence. This is what develops. And I missed going on to the second point. And it seems like my computer's stuck. So let me just see if I can move it on. There we go. You have a new view of yourself. You have a new view of yourself. 
Real faith, folk, that works. Challenging, challenging. I told you this was going to be challenging. Flows from the conclusion and conviction that I am a servant of God and of Jesus Christ, his son. Servant. Dulos. It is the opposite of pride and arrogance. It exudes humility. Again, I ask the question, where is this to be found? But let's move on. Like James, is the third ingredient of faith that works. It's that you have a new prospect. And I mean in the outworking and the future living of your life and the future living of my life. Now, simply want to refer to that single word, greetings, greetings. I'm going to give you the Greek word. It's gerein, and I'm going to pause it for you, for those who understand a little bit more about the, uh, the grammar. It's a verb. It's an infinitive. It's present, and it's active. And the important thing over here to understand, the root meaning of this word is that of joy, which is the most appropriate intent of the letter. A way of life in obedience to the imperatives of God actually comes about in a context of those who understand the life of a believer is one of joy. Now, in the same way that James comes to us as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, so his desire is that his readers, his readers also, that means you and me, also rejoice with him in our servanthood that we have toward our father and his son. Now, let's just try and develop that a little bit further. The letter is addressed, you notice, to the dispersion. Now, these are not people who've just spread because it's December and they've gone on holiday. Well, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere, it could be July and it's summertime and they've gone on holiday. No, not at all. These are believers, probably Jewish Christians, because he speaks of the 12 tribes of the dispersion. These are Jewish Christians having to flee from persecution. Greetings. There's something about you, even in this place that you find yourself in of extreme difficulty and hardship and and, and persecution. Greetings. There's a joy. We're going to speak a little bit more about that in weeks to come. As you know, uh, the passage unfolds uh, about joy in the midst of trials. It's not because of the trials. It's not, no, no, we can't be, I can't be happy because I'm going through difficulties. That, that's, that's not, uh, humanly speaking, even possible. It's joy in a state of being, in the relationship, uh, someone having had a new start, somebody who has a new view of themselves in terms of uh, the place and, 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 and the position that they have. Say a little bit more also about that in a minute. So it's not these circumstances that lead their hearts, but it's the reality of God in their lives that leads their hearts. Why, why think of joy as a prospect when circumstances are horrible? Why can there be some kind of rejoicing, to rejoice in such a situation? 
Well, yeah, just a couple of reasons. It's a wonderful thing to belong, savingly belong to God. To be called sons and daughters of the living God. To know that we are no longer separated from his kindness and his compassion and his grace. That he is our father. That we are his children. That this God who is sovereign, this God who is the creator of all things, and this God who is all-powerful and everywhere present, this God who is, is infinitely holy, uh, this God who is merciful and mighty and just, he's our Father. He's our Father. And, and there's a reason, even when we don't understand things, to know that this God is good, this God is all-wise. Here's the fundamental issue that we ought to be very aware of in the context that we find ourselves having become new creatures in Christ, that he's taken away your sins. The burden of sin, the guilt of sin, the gift of righteousness. Understanding something of the love of Christ that compels us to go forward. Knowing, as Paul says to the Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that amazing? That God would have that particular interest in you and me, even in that which he wants us to do, the purpose that he has for your life. And therefore we rejoice because we strive with his strength, any strength, to conform to the kind of life that is pleasing to him. That life style, if you like, revealed uh, in his word that we even see in the very nature of God. And so, as I begin to draw this study to a close, the imperatives, the commands of his will, are not translated into, this is the point, burdensome and tiresome duty. Oh, I've got to do this thing because God says I must do this thing. It's the unbeliever that will have that attitude. Not those who have a new start of being born again. Not those who have a new perspective of themselves as servants of God. We need to see that obeying the do's and don'ts is about the joy of serving Jesus. You know that hymn, of course, there is joy in serving Jesus. I won't sing it for you. You'll turn off your, uh, your, your, your TV screen. But you know it, a wonderful song. There is joy in serving Jesus. Willingly, lovingly obeying God. And so a couple of implications that I want to end with. Just so that I can summarize in some senses what I've been saying tonight. Dear folk, conversion precedes meaningful works. A new start is essential before sanctification can actually meaningfully unfold or service in the kingdom uh, can take place. You're saved by faith alone, but never by faith that is alone. Second implication, it's one I long to see in my own life, and I long to see it around us in the church and in the context of those who claim to be Christians. Humility. Dear friends, humility displays true servanthood of Jesus. In fact, I'm convinced that humility 
really is the great evidence of a new start having taken place. Thirdly, repeating, real or saving faith finds that there is joy in serving Jesus. And so therefore, summed up in the theme of the book, the centrality of Christ in your life will inevitably make you a rejoicing servant of Father God and His Son. Well, I hope that inspires you to want to explore with me uh, in these coming weeks uh, some of these imperatives that will be unpacked to us by James, servant of God and of His Son, Jesus. I'm going to pray for us and then I'm just going to display some questions up. In fact, I'll put the questions up right now. Uh, just a couple of questions. You look at these questions, perhaps discuss them with others if you do meet with someone else. But may God's hand be upon us. Lord, thank you for your word. I just thank you that it's so practical, so penetrating. So, Lord, it leaves me feeling exposed and, and just once again seeing my own need of uh, being at the foot of the cross and, and praying, Lord, for your continuing work the work of your spirit in sanctifying us as believers. And Lord, if there are those who've discovered tonight or thinking that they're not believers, won't you, Lord, convict them of their need of Jesus and, and, and their need and even giving them the capacity to repent from sin and have faith in Jesus. Thank you for Central Baptist Church. Thank you, Lord, for uh, all that you are doing among us. Continue to do that work, and Lord, may you be at the center. May you be glorified. May you be honored. Amen. Just a, a quick reminder tonight, if you are listening to this, don't forget the Missions Weekend. Starting on Friday night at Arcadia, 6.30, uh, do join us. Uh, we're going to be uh, uh, tackling the theme of a, a wayward world and a working church. Really, you can apply from the book of James. Saturday afternoon, I really want to urge you to come to the Hill. Hill Campus at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We have two speakers. We're going to have a time of discussion, some engagement and interaction. And then we're going to end the evening off giving you some something to eat, some hot dogs, something to drink, some refreshments and some good fellowship. And then, of course, our services on Sunday, normal services with a mission focus. Jesus said we ought to make disciples. We ought to make disciples of the nations. Why don't you join us in uh, promoting and, and, and getting excited about that which we can do to the glory of his name. So God bless you and uh, good night.